For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, so we're going to be looking at Genesis 22, verse 1 through 14. You know, if you track Abraham's life, it kind of represents a mountain range where, you know, there are these staggering peaks of faith that are dotted with these lows where it seems like he experienced doubt. Tonight, we're going to see this incredible act of faith where God calls him to do the unimaginable. Let's begin in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. This is after he bore Isaac. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the one, one of the mountains which I will show you. Okay. First thing that we should take note of is that Moses tells us that God tested Abraham's faith. That seems a little odd. Why would God need to test our faith? I think, first of all, he doesn't do it for his own benefit. He knows with 100% accuracy how we are going to respond in every single situation. God, after all, is omniscient, meaning that he knows all things. And he can accurately predict how every event will, will unfold. And so he doesn't do it for his benefit. The Bible tells us that God actually tests our faith for our benefit in order to strengthen and build our faith. You know, really, he tests our faith as part of our spiritual maturation. Now, that seems a little bit foreign to some of us, you know, especially if you've grown up in the American church. You know, most Christians today think that God is here sort of like the recreational director of a cruise ship. He's here to make sure that we're not exerting ourselves too much and that we enjoy our lives. And yet, the Bible tells us that God actually will put us in situations, circumstances of either suffering or duress, as a way to try to build up our faith. You know, James 1, verse 3 and 4 says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed... You will be perfect or mature, complete, needing nothing. One way to think about our faith is that it's sort of like a muscle. You know, when you're trying to work out, you can tell there's a lot of people here who are interested in that, trying to work out, look buff, right? Get that hard body. <laughs> One of the things that you, un- you learn as you start to exercise is that if you want to grow your muscle, you need to put it under stress. That actually, when you're lifting weights or when you're exercising, it actually, there, you, you actually have slight tears in your muscle fiber. And then when it grows back, it actually grows bigger. And that's how you build up muscle. And likewise, God builds up our faith in the same way. He puts us through a trial he puts us through some hardship knowing that putting stress on our faith will actually build it up. At the time, though, it's very painful and we don't, we don't like it. But God knows that the outcome of this will be that we will trust Him more. 
Stuart Briscoe, commentator uh, on Genesis, summarizes this well. He says, faith is not lived out in a vacuum. It operates in the tensions of life and often demonstrates itself more fully by its responses to the furnace of affliction than the warm, shallow waters of ease and prosperity. So contrary to popular belief, God isn't here to just make your life really easy and comfortable. God actually may put you through a course of suffering because He knows that by doing so, it will actually build up our faith. Secondly, He does this to expose deficiencies in our faith. Often when we come to Christ, we'll set limits on the extent to which we'll follow God. We'll follow Him so far as God doesn't call on us to go beyond what's comfortable for us. Or so long as it doesn't interfere with this aspiration that we've centered our lives around. And often, we don't even realize that we've set that limit, that we've drawn a a line in the sand and have said, I'm not going to go beyond this. And so God will actually put us in various circumstances or bring about suffering in our lives in order to expose those deficiencies in our faith. Finally, he does this to purify our faith. That, you know, we have a certain amount of faith when we come to Christ, but over time, God wants to try to purify that, to grow it. Peter says, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold through your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So, he's using this metallurgical metaphor. I'm not sure that you're, if you're real familiar with this, but if you took something like gold, it contains a lot of impurities. And in order to take gold that is, c- contains a lot of impurities and uh, try to get it to a place where it's more pure, so for example, if you had 10 karat gold and you wanted 24 karat gold, you need to take it through this process where you actually put it into a crucible which is sort of like a container that can withstand a lot of heat, and you put this you know, piece of gold in there and heat it up till it becomes molten. And when it gets to a certain point, you'll notice that dross actually comes up to the surface. These are impurities. And what, what you know, somebody will do is they'll wipe that away and then start the process over again. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that there's only a certain amount of impurity that you can actually draw out of the gold at any one time. So in order to really raise the purity of the gold, you need to take this ingot or whatever through the process several different times, drawing out more and more impurities each time. Likewise, God will take us through different trials or put us through different circumstances throughout the course of our life in order to purify our faith. Now, we're told in verse 3, the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a, fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him, told him about. You know, can you imagine what must have been rolling around in Abraham's mind. 
It must have been really difficult for him to obey God in this situation. You know, and for some of us, you know, we don't have children, most of us, I guess, in this room. But as a parent, you know, it's really hard to describe the kind of love that a parent has for their child. So this must have been excruciatingly painful for Abraham. Not to mention, you know, Abraham probably was asking himself questions like, God promised that he was going to bless all the nations through this one descendant of mine, my son. How will he perform that if my son dies? If I have to sacrifice him? I'm sure he probably thought to himself, God made me wait 25 years, and then now he's going to take him away? Why would he do that? Certainly God is good. Certainly he has a plan for me. Certainly he's going to come through on his promise. And so this must have been agonizing for Abraham as he was walking for three days probably silently suffering, not telling any of his companions, including his son, what he was going to do. You know, some of us probably feel like we're in the same place as Abraham. Not that God is actually calling on us to sacrifice our child, but that, you know, maybe there's something that God has blessed you with, something good in your life. And now it seems like he's threatening to take that away, or he's what it seems like is calling you to give it back to him. You know, one of the things that we have to understand about blessing is that there's a subtle danger in it. That God will give us good things, but we have a tendency to take good things and to make them ultimate things. To start to base our lives around these blessings which God has given. And God knows that when we do this, we're putting ourselves in a really precarious situation. We're actually setting ourselves up for disappointment. He's not doing this because he's jealous, because he needs our affection. Often he'll call on us to give back the blessing that he's imparted to us because he wants to make sure that our loyalty remains secured in him, not in this blessing, not in this thing that he's given. And often he'll call on us to give it away And, you know, in some cases, he'll give it back to us, but in other cases, he will take it back. But we have to trust that God is is good and that he will provide for us. On the third day of the journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We'll worship there, and then we'll come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. Notice the role that Abraham plays, that he carries the fire and knife, the implements of death and sacrifice, whereas we're told that Isaac actually carried the wood. And that actually becomes very significant later on, as we'll see. Now, I think modern people, as they're reading this, might feel a little bit troubled. Why would God call on Abraham to sacrifice his son or perform any sort of human sacrifice for that matter? I think one thing we have to consider in this context, human sacrifice was very common. You know, 
It was not unusual for people in the ancient Near East to sacrifice small children. And so this all took place before the Old Testament law that we, where we read God saying, you are not allowed to, to pass your children through the fire or offer them up as a sacrifice. This was way before that, hundreds of years beforehand. And as we'll see, God actually was playing out a divine drama through this event. As the two of them walked together, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire in the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked together. And it's interesting that Abraham, at this point, we can see, already trusted that God would somehow work this out, that God would somehow provide. You know, how could Abraham actually go through with this, right? How could he actually offer his son as a sacrifice, Well, Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19, explains Abraham's thinking. That it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promise, was ready to sacrifice his only son, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died... God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. So here the author of Hebrews, over 2,000 years later, is replaying this event but giving us commentary and insight into Abraham's thinking. But it raises the question, how could he know? How How could he from the text, infer that Abraham reasoned to himself that God would somehow raise his son from the dead. Well, turns out the author of Hebrews was actually a very uh, careful Bible reader. If you look at verse 5, he says to his servants, we will worship and then we will come back to you. There you have the assurance that God would provide. Abraham knew in advance, going up the mountain, that God was going to somehow bring his son back. And so the author of Hebrews draws from this and infers that Abraham must have trusted God's promise. That even though he was walking into this unknown and very confusing situation, that God would, first of all, come through on his promise, and secondly, that somehow, even if he had to kill his son Isaac, would bring him back to life. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, one thing I want you to notice, Isaac must have presented himself as a sacrifice here. At this time, he was probably, I don't know, 16 to 20 years old. So he, was a, he, was a, he wasn't like a little kid. I mean, he must have been lar- large enough and strong enough to be able to carry that wood up, up to that mountain. And so 
he must have submitted to this. After all, Abraham by this time was like 120 years old. You know, how could a 20-year-old allow a hundred, you know, decrepit 120-year-old man tie him up if he decided that he was going to struggle? I mean, there's no way, right, that a 20-year-old would just, you know, wouldn't be able to fight off an old man like that. At the very least, he, he could have out-sprinted Abraham. You know, if you're 20 years old and you can't out-sprint a 120-year-old man, you need to leave right now and go work out, Okay. You need to go do some cardio. That ain't, that ain't happening. So it must be that Isaac was cooperating with Abraham. That he was willing to lay down his life, trusting that God would provide. Abraham picked up a knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. I mean, just... Just imagine that the, the scene, you know, just sort of slows down the narrative. And just as Abraham is about to plunge the knife into his son, the angel of the Lord just stops him, dead in his tracks. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your own son, your only son. Most Old Testament scholars regard these appearances of the angel of the Lord as actually a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. And from my own study, it seems to corroborate this. It seems to fit with the picture. And so here the Son of God was actually preventing Abraham from killing his own son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in its, its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yareh, which means the Lord will provide. So there you have the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Now, as you comb through this narrative, one thing that really jumps out at you are a number of striking parallels. Hebrews 11 verse 19 tells us that this whole event was actually God acting out a divine drama in order to predict the coming of his son. The author of Hebrews says, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. Now in Greek, this is the word parabole, where we get the word parable from. Jesus often used parables to tell stories to try to show some sort of lesson, some moral lesson. And there were a number of parallels between the story and the thing that he was teaching. And so in this case, we see that this really acts as sort of a type or a story that fits another reality. And as we'll see, this has a number of striking details that fit with what happened with Jesus almost 2,000 years later. First of all, we see that God stresses, take your son, your only son. And if you ever read the New Testament, one thing you'll notice is that God refers to Jesus as his one and only son or his only begotten son. 
Secondly, God sends Abraham to the land of Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. This becomes very interesting because about a thousand years later, Solomon builds the first temple on this actual mountain. We read in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Now, this is where things get real interesting. We're told that Jesus was actually sacrificed, that he died on the cross in Jerusalem, just outside the city. So it was just north of this this area. And it goes to show that when Abraham said, God will provide a lamb, that vague reference was fulfilled in Jesus. That Jesus became the true sacrificial lamb that paid for our sins. Third, Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders. In the same way that Jesus carried the cross, the wooden cross, to his crucifixion, the implement of his own death. Fourth, Abraham carried the knife and the fire they would use, mirroring what God the Father would do, that he would pour out his punishment on his son Jesus as a way to pay for the sins of the entire human race, that he would empty his judgment on his son so that we wouldn't have to experience God's judgment. Now, it's interesting that there's, it seems like both the father and the son were playing the same role that Abraham and Isaac were, that they were working in concert in being able to sacrifice In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, Paul comments that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So it wasn't like Jesus was this helpless victim of God, that God was like carrying out some sort of divine child abuse. Jesus was actually fully aware of what God was doing, and he he voluntarily gave his life up for us in love. Isaac willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice, just as Jesus did, where he says in John 10, verse 17 and 18, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. So Jesus wasn't a helpless victim. He was actually working alongside the Father to purchase the salvation that all of us can enjoy. Six, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son demonstrates God's love for us. The Bible teaches that Jesus' death on the cross represents the ultimate act of love and that many generations in eternity will be looking back on this event as really the greatest demonstration of God's love and mercy. This is uh, what the angel of the Lord says, I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so, in the same way that Abraham was willing to give up his one and only son, his most prized possession, God the Father gave up his most prized possession, his own only begotten son, Jesus. 
We read in 1 John 3, verse 16, that we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. God demonstrated His love for you by showing you mercy through Jesus' death. Seventh, Abraham spent three days grieving the death of his son, believing that his son was good, as good as dead. Just as Jesus spent three days, three nights, buried in a tomb and was eventually was raised from the dead. Number eight, when Isaac asked where the sacrificial animal was, Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. And when Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist saw him from a distance and, and cried out, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that God would ultimately provide. And while Abraham believed that God would provide a lamb for the burnt offering, God provided a ram instead. But later, he would provide the lamb of God. And so you have this incredibly beautiful picture of what God would eventually do through his son Jesus. And all of this written thousands of years in advance. Again, one of the themes that you probably have seen if you've been with us and are an investigator in God or the Bible is that God provides plenty of evidence in the Old Testament in order to give us convincing proof, really, that God was actually acting through his son Jesus, that it wasn't just some common thief who died on a cross 2,000 years ago and that, you know, his followers made up this mythological story about how he saved the world. God knew that there would be a lot of skepticism, and so he embedded these different prophecies or types in order to give us evidence that he's real, that he speaks today. Now, skeptics of the Bible might say, well, you know what, it's still cruel for God to command Abraham to sacrifice his son, even though God had a plan to rescue Isaac. I guess my answer to that would be, I'm sure that Abraham was upset during those three long days. But I'm sure, you know, from where he's standing now, he probably is thinking to himself, it was worth it. You know, that agony, that torment that I was feeling, all of that was worth being able to, to really give a picture of what Jesus would do. And so God really had no plan whatsoever to allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He had a plan all along to provide a substitute, just like he would Jesus. So let's draw some conclusions. I think... Um, First of all, God grew Abraham's faith throughout the course of his life. You know, you think about the very beginning where God gives him this promise in Genesis 12 and then reiterates it in Genesis 15, verse 4. He says that I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sky, or the stars in the sky, and I'm going to bless all the nations through your descendant. And then we're told that Abraham believed in God and God credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, at that moment, because of Abraham's faith, God gave him a right standing. Not because of anything that he did. Not because he was a really good person. But because he placed his faith in God. 
And so Abraham had a pretty good start, but then, you know, 10 years later, he has that incident with Hagar where, you know, he's like, well, maybe God really meant that my descendant would come from my body, not necessarily Sarah's. And Sarah was like, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. You know what we should do? You should take my young, really attractive handmaiden, Hagar, and you should sleep with her. And, you know, Abraham was like, honey, I'll do whatever you say if you think that's what's best. (laughs) And so he produced Ishmael, and God came back to him and said, you know what, that's not what I had in mind. This child will actually come through Sarah. And then 15 years later, 15 years later, we're told that God actually came through on his promise. And then we see this incredible event about 15 or 20 years later. And so how was he able to exercise this kind of faith? What what did God do to help progress his faith through these, you know, 35, 40 years? The answer, waiting. God made him wait a really long time, 25 years, before he finally gave Abraham his promise. And he used that as sort of a crucible to build up and to purify Abraham's faith. God will do that. He'll make us wait. It's hard to imagine waiting for anything. You know, if God says, I want you to wait for this, but it's going to take 25 years. That'd be a, that'd be a hard sell. I mean, I, I have a hard time sitting at the drive through window waiting in my car for five minutes. He had to wait 25 years. Kind of reminds me of an old saying that I heard as as a really young Christian. If you're into God, you're into waiting. I hate that. (laughs) But it's true. God will, will test your faith. He'll build up your faith by making you wait for certain things, calling on you to persist in prayer, calling on you to persevere even though it's unclear what direction you're moving in. Derek Kidner, commentator, points out this test, instead of breaking Abraham, brings him to the summit of his lifelong walk with God. And so God will actually use these tests in order to produce these incredible acts of faith. Sometimes I think, you know, we get more fixated on the gifts than on the giver. It's another, that's another lesson that we can draw from this event. You know, God knows that one of the tendencies we have is to cling on to the gifts that he gives us. That we try to um, take these things that he blesses us with and put, put those things in a position that they don't belong in. And God will often call on us to hand that back over to him. And that can be very painful for God to call on us to do this. But, you know, I think the reason that God does this is he knows that wrapping your identity around one of his blessings really sets us up for disappointment. Because he knows that 
The only thing that will truly satisfy us, the only thing that will truly give us fulfillment is centering our identity on what he says about us and what he's done for us, not on the things that he gives us. You know, uh, a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, we talked about the second decision. You know, the first decision describes entering into a relationship with God in the first place, where you ask for Jesus' forgiveness to apply to you. But beyond that, there's also a second decision where we can actually give our lives as a sacrifice to God, where we basically lay it out on the table and say, God, I want to give you everything. But the reality is, it's not really just a second decision. It happens to be one of many decisions we need to make. Because there's no way that when you make the second decision that you can anticipate all the different things that God will call on you to give up in your life. And so really it's a process where over the course of your life, God calls on you to reaffirm your commitment to him by handing things back over to him, the blessings in some cases that he, he has given us. And he may call on us to do that in a number of areas. In some cases, it may be a relationship. That's exactly what God did with Abraham. He called on Abraham to give up his one and only son whom he loved. And he may do that to us too. Where God may call on us to hand back a relationship. You know, for some of us, that might be a dating relationship. Or maybe that's a friendship, a key friendship in our lives. And God does this calling on us to trust him to provide for us. In other cases, uh, it may be that God may actually call on us to give back our ministry. Ministry just describes the influence that we exert, the spiritual influence that we exert over the people whom God has entrusted to us as we help build up their faith. And so some of us have a large influence with the people around us and it's very satisfying. It's very exciting to see God use you in a powerful way to impact people. And in some cases, God will actually bring about failure in our ministry. Or the people who are pouring our lives into will decide suddenly that they don't want to follow God anymore. And so after years of building up this ministry, we find ourselves um, starting over. And I've seen people to whom God has done that, and they face a crisis. I've seen people who've gotten bitter, resentful toward God, and in some extreme cases, they've decided, I'm going to leave. In other cases, I've seen people who feel jaded about trying to serve, and they'll only do it to a certain level because they don't want to have to face the embarrassment of losing their ministry again through failure. Others who've decided to persevere, to endure that failure, that suffering, I've seen God redevelop their ministry, rebuild their ministry, and they've gone on to impact many more people beside. And so, you know, there are times where God will do that. In other cases, it might be financial blessing, great career opportunities, opportunities to make a lot of money. I was thinking about one of my friends. He's one of our sphere leaders, and he actually got his master's in uh, computer science engineering and he was working for a consulting firm doing software development. He was making tons of money 
And out of the blue, uh, one of our leaders calls him up and says, hey, we want to hire you part-time for a job. So we want you to quit your job and make, you know, pennies on the dollar, working part-time. And um, after considering it, he decided, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go for it. And he worked like for, I don't know, maybe two years as a part-time employee for, the, for our church. And eventually, got, you know, God worked through him so powerfully that he became a sphere leader in our church. And, and today, he's impacted thousands of people's lives without any exaggeration. I'm sure at the time when he was giving up that incredible career, he probably thought to himself, what am I doing? And I'm sure there were a lot of people around him to remind him, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You're throwing this all away. You, you've, you've devoted your entire life to get to this point. You're just going to throw it away to do this God thing? It's crazy. And yet I'm sure he looks back on that with no regret. I'm sure he probably views it as one of the greatest decisions he's ever made in his life. And although he's probably not as wealthy as he could have been, he's doing pretty well. He's not struggling. And so God has provided for him. In other cases, it might be health. You know, you sort of take this for granted. You never really think about what a blessing your health is until you get a bad diagnosis or you suffer a debilitating injury that changes the course of your life. And, you know, I've seen people, again, who've grown bitter, resentful toward God, shaking their fist at Him because they can't stand the thought that God would let them suffer. And yet they're not taking the long view that God is doing probably something greater than they can actually see in the moment. Really, you could probably put a lot of different things into this category. Things where God may call on you to give these things back up. Now, let me, let me say, you know, these things are all good things. These are blessings from God. But the point is that God wants us to hold on to these loosely. Because he doesn't want us to make the mistake of clutching on to them and trying to center our lives around them instead of around him. Third, Abraham had no clue his incredible display of faith would actually serve as a picture of God's salvation. I'm sure that even after this event, he probably had no idea what God would do 2,000 years later. And yet John tells us explicitly what God would eventually do and what this really was a picture of in John 3.16 and 17. But this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. If you're here tonight and you're confused about what Christianity is all about, let me summarize it. It's very simple. God does not want to punish you. God does not want to judge you. He wants to give you eternal life. And the Bible teaches that God loves us, but because of his perfect moral character and because of our moral wrongdoing, he can't allow us into his presence. But because God is actually merciful, he decided that he would put on human flesh in the man Jesus Christ and that he would sacrifice himself on our behalf 
so that we can actually have a relationship with Him. And the really great thing about this, we don't have to do anything in order to receive this gift. Turns out God purchased it all. In fact, it was an expensive purchase. And that's why He offers it to us as a gift. So if you're here tonight and you don't know God in a personal way, God wants, to know, wants you to know that He's extending you a gift. But you have to reach out and grab it. You need to receive the forgiveness that He offers through Jesus Christ. And finally, Abraham probably had no clue that this heroic act of faith would actually become a picture of radical faith. I'm sure that as he descended the mountain with Isaac, the people who were with him were like, oh, what are you guys both doing here? And I'm sure that they probably went on with their lives. It's not like this became this uh, great story that uh, was known throughout the ancient world. But God took this radical act of faith that took place 4,000 years ago, and here we are reading about it today. You know, you might be enduring some sort of suffering. You might be enduring some sort of testing in your life. You might be faced with a decision where God is calling you to give back some sort of blessing in your life, and you're struggling with that. You need to think about that in the larger context of God's plan in history. That one day, people, many generations in eternity may be looking back on your life as an example of great faith. And so I'd urge you to trust Him. Yeah, Lord, thanks that you can take something as senseless as suffering and you can actually give it meaning and purpose. Thanks that you are a God who uh, redeems uh, tragedy in our lives and that you actually can use that to refine and test our faith to make it stronger. I pray for those of us, Lord, who are facing major decisions in our life, uh, maybe decisions where we need to give something up or we sense your calling on us to um, hand back a blessing that you've given. Um, I pray that we would have the courage to trust in you, to trust in your promise, to trust that um, your sacrifice of your son Jesus guarantees that you're going to provide good things for us. And also, Lord, I pray for those of us who um, are faced really with the first decision I was talking about, whether to enter into a relationship with you in the first place. I pray, Lord, if uh, any of us were just struck by that comparison between uh, what Abraham did and what you did with your son Jesus, that we would um, take a leap of faith and, and entrust ourselves to you by receiving what Jesus did on the cross as a payment for our wrongdoing. And we thank you for anybody who did that in his name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.